Hey, we're in a series called Redesigning Your Life. God's the original designer, and when God does something, when He makes anything, He does it right the first time. Never needs modification. Our problem is we get in and start changing the specifications. Well, I don't think, well, I believe, and we just start doing it our way, and it never comes out the way God promised. You know, if you want a Betty Crocker cake that's on the front of a cake mix, you got to use the recipe on the back. If you keep changing a recipe, you don't get what's on the front. And that's what happens to a lot of Christianity. They just change the rules, they change the ingredients, and they can't get what God promised, so they just give up. So we looked last week at patience from the book of James. Now, we're going to talk about today, this week, the original design, God's original design. Let me start with a, few, a question. You ever have this happen? You never manage your money. You have no savings account. You don't keep track of your spending. You have no budget. You never pay off your credit card debt, but you wake up one morning and discover, boom, I'm a millionaire. You're slow, but okay, yeah. No, it never happens. That never happens. And here's the point. You can live by design or you can live by default. If I live by design, I will be intentional about my life. I have a purpose greater than myself, and it drives me with great zeal. I look for friends who will hold me accountable to my values. I examine my life on a regular basis. How am I doing? I live with a strong sense of determination. And a classic picture of this is Jesus, you know. He's 12 years old. His mom is scolding him for staying behind at the temple in Jerusalem. And he says, why were you searching for me? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? This 12-year-old boy has an amazing sense of purpose, and we see it all the way through his life to the very end when he says here in Scripture, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken to heaven, Jesus set his face towards Jerusalem. Now, that's an old translation, but I love it. He set his face. It meant not to just decide something, but to be resolute, fixed in my purpose, to make it so you will not even think about turning back. So I can live by design with my one and only life God gives me, or I can live by default. I can just wash up on the beach. Now, default looks a little bit different. To live by default means I just follow the path of least resistance. I just drift. I know something's wrong. I'm stressed or I'm tired of my, or my marriage is stagnant or I have bad habits. I'm not connected with God in the way I ought to be. I'm not becoming the person or living the life I want to, but I don't have the energy or commitment to do what's right. That's where you end up, by drifting. If I don't choose gratitude by design, I get ingratitude by default. If I don't choose community by design, I get isolation by default. If I don't choose joy by design, I get resentment by default. To live by design doesn't mean you have to be hyper-organized or a list maker. It just means to embrace the life God has for you and live by those values. So for this message, I want to go back to God's original design in the human life and for it. And our prototype is a guy called Adam. And I want to talk about four core dimensions of every human life that are in the Adam story. It's really, really simple and practical. So I'm going to ask everybody to ask yourself this question. Am I living by design or by default in any of these four major areas? So here we go. First of all, God gave Adam and he gives to you and me 
a body life, a bodily life. You got a body. Now, everything that exists was designed by God. Genesis starts out, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The reason we love design and order is that we're made in the image of God, and He's the ultimate designer. Our universe came in by design, not by default. It's not an accident. It has a purpose. It has a function, and it's good. But in my humble opinion, the greatest design of God is a human body. Here's what the psalmist said. For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know it very well. Psalms 139. Your body was made by God by design, not by default. Now, a few bodies in the room look like you've been defaulting a little bit. Don't blame God. There's a great book by Dr. Paul Brandt and one of my friends, Phil Yancey called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. You and I began as a single fertilized cell. While you were still in your mother's womb, that single cell led to 60,000 miles of capillaries and blood vessels forming precisely when and where they were needed. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That'll set your hair on fire. A Nobel Prize winning mathematician from Yale wrote about the development of a human body from a single cell and the instructions in our DNA. And this is what he wrote. He says, the complexity of these, the mathematical models of how these things are indeed done, are beyond human comprehension. Even though I'm a mathematician, I look at this with marvel. Uh, how did these instruction sets not make mistakes as they built what is us? He says, it's a mystery, it's divinity. It is divine. He got it right. See, in newborn babies, there's a hole in the septum between two ventricles of the heart that close at exactly the right moment at birth to allow the oxygenation of blood. Your body has 39 trillion cells. Now, Philip, you probably have a few more. <laughs> and you have 39 trillion bacteria. How does your immune system know which cells to attack and which to leave alone. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Let me pause a minute and say this. In high school and in college with rowdy boys, all our bad boys and me, I got to tell you this, I certainly wasn't a Christian boy, but I had enough brains to know what I was being taught was bunk. None of us believed the nonsense that I came out of a but ozone level as a tadpole and became hairy and was able to get in a tree and that a few more million years and I got eyebrows and fingernails and I stood up and here I am. Nobody believed it. We had to sit there in class, but we weren't advocating for Christianity. We were just a bunch of pagan boys sitting there thinking this is absolute madness. When you look at the complexity and the detail and design of human life, your eyes are only 1% of the weight of your head. They have 120 million cones in them. Those cones are so sensitive that the smallest unit of light, called a photon, will register on them. Now, somebody told me a joke about photons. You want to hear it? You're going to have to hear it. <laughs> a photon checks into a hotel. The desk clerk says, you have any luggage? The phot photon says, no, I'm traveling light. <laughs> yeah, no sympathy applause, okay. 
Your eye is capable of seeing the flame of a single candle at a distance of 15 miles. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. I'll tell you how amazing the sense of smell is. If a male moth smells a single molecule of pheromone from a girl moth three miles away, he will not eat or rest until he tracks down that captivating girl moth. And one molecule of pheromone per mile is enough for him to track her down. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Can we praise God that he created not only the universe, the galaxies, the stars, the black holes, and all matter, but your body from a single cell. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. What an amazing thing God's done. Here's what Adam and Eve knew about their bodies. You ought to know. Their bodies, your body, my body, it's a gift from God. They're kind of loners, right? They're part of God's creation. That means they need care and upkeep. So how are you doing at taking care of the body God gave you? If you loaned your car to a friend and they treated your car like you treat your body, would you be happy? Or be an old rust bucket, right? If you're living by God's design, is there anything about your body God would want you to redesign, take care of? Maybe how you give your body rest. In this amazing design story in Genesis 1, it says, And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. Now, it doesn't say what I think he would say, that he called light, light. It says he called it day, which is a period of light or a unit of time. The idea is God was creating time, not daylight savings time, I assure you. God made the day for you to work and play, and he made the night for you to rest, to sleep. God knows that our bodies need that, especially in our culture today. Then God made the Sabbath, which was to be a day of doing nothing, so that I could remember again, everything's not riding on my shoulders, it's on God's shoulders, and I can be free, kind of like a little kid. So are you engaging in some kind of a Sabbath rest? Do you rest well in the evening? Do you have times when you don't do anything? Some of you, I, I heard some people, well, I can't sit around and do nothing. Well, what's, something's wrong. You ought to be able to have a time during a week when you ain't doing anything. I'm not thinking spiritual. I'm not thinking anything. I'm just doing something that refreshes my soul. Maybe go shopping. Maybe play golf. Maybe go fishing. Whatever it might be. It, it pleases God. God is not a workaholic. Even he rested to set up, not because he was tired, but to set a pattern for us. You have to be able to chill or you're going to burn up that body. So do you allow your body that God gave you to recharge? How about this? How do you feed your body that God gave you? I have a few friends in here that will not answer this. All right. God created Adam and Eve and he had them eat. He had a very particular diet for them. It was a vegetarian diet. They would eat from the trees in the garden and it was delicious and it was good for them. There were no Dorito trees, no Oreo trees. <laughs> People sometimes make a meal of lard and fat, sugar and grease, and then pray, God bless this to the nourishment of my body. And I'm wondering, wonder what God thinks about that prayer. You know, that doesn't mean I have to be obsessive about diet or exercise. Paul put it this way, offer your body a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. So this is your body. 
Your body is not a neutral thing. It's not a machine. It's a gift from God. It's an amazing design. And so many of your people are taught not to like their bodies. But your body is pleasing to God, and it ought to be pleasing to you. And one of the most striking statements for the prototype, Adam and his wife, was that they were naked and felt no shame. Now, it never tells us what they looked like. It doesn't say they were supermodels. They were just not ashamed of the bodies God gave them. In our culture today, constant body shaming, eating disorders, fear of aging, obsessing over appearance is rampant. My body's too thin. It's too fat. I'm not enough of this. I don't like this about me. It should be different. It's not working properly. So as a church, as a believer, brothers and sisters, can we agree that in God's eyes, every single person, every body is pleasing and holy to God? Every age spot, every wrinkle, every gray hair, every non-hair, every face, every shape, every size, every color, every condition, able or disabled, diseased or undiseased, your body was designed by God and it's precious to God, and He wants you on earth to live in it as your little kingdom. I can control that little kingdom. So today, thank God that you, yeah, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's our bodies, and our bodies will be resurrected into a glorious state one day. Disability, pain, and dysfunction, uh, birth defects, human suffering, that was never the design of God. He didn't do that. That came after Adam's rebellion and sin in mankind, and that came in through the fall. But part, but part of what's amazing about God is that He's going to take every single person, and He can still bring great good into the world through them. And that body you have matters immensely to God. And one day in the resurrection, we're going to have had total healing and wholeness because God loves bodies. He even lived in one. You have one of those. I ought to walk around every day saying, God, thank you. Everything works. Thank you. I can think. I can smell. I can see. I can move my arms and feet and legs because some people cannot. Thank you for this amazing thing. It's aging, but it works. Thank you. So is there anything in your bodily life you want to redesign and bring it in alignment with God's design? Second, a work life, a work life. Sometimes people think the Garden of Eden was a retirement community and work didn't come along until after the fall. That's not true. From the Adam story in Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man, Adam, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to tend it, to take care of it. God himself is a worker or a designer. And he made us in his image, which is why there is within the average person a desire to fix things up, to make them better, to improve, to add value. God made the whole earth and he puts man in a garden. Now, what's the difference between a jungle and a garden? Ah, design. A jungle happens by default. Some of your yards look like that. But a garden has a gardener. There's somebody planting and planting and seeding and weeding and watering. That's the great job Adam and Eve were given to make the entire earth flourish and to take it from a jungle of chaos to a garden of beauty in every aspect. Listen, when you rent a new home or you buy a new home, or whether it's an apartment or not, if you're a child of God, when you walk up to it, you ought to say, I'm going to make this place better. I remember when Cindy and I rented a house when we first came here, I mean, the yard was a disaster. There were more ant hills, uh, fire ants out there. There was very little grass. It was all weeds. 
It needed some paint. There were some other things needed. And in one year, I had that baby looking like, like I would want it if I owned it. See, I had the attitude, I'm a steward, I'm an owner. I'm a person that God created, and in, since I have responsibility for this, whether I rent it or own it, I'm going to steward this thing, and I'm going to add value to it. Do you add value to your job? Do you add value to your neighborhood? I have a few I'd like to transport over to your neighborhood. They don't add any value. Do you improve what you've been given? Because you can. You know, you're not just stuck with the way you came out. A few nips and tucks and a little exercise, you can improve what God gave you. That's part of life. We are stewards of our life, of this earth, and whatever God puts in our hands. And we're supposed to improve it. See, work is a good thing. And the task God gives to Adam is to take the good God created, all of creation is good, and to add value to it. We're to move, in other words, from creation to culture, from jungle to a garden, from good to very good. Eggs are good, but eggs Benedict are better. Wheat is good, but Cinnabons, they're very good. Grapes are good, but wine is, well, you can decide on your own on that one. Here's the fundamental challenge for everybody designing your work, where to take what's good and make it very good. Now, in a fallen world, very often we're working on what's really bad to redeem it, to make it better. Your work life is given to you from God, and Paul says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Whatever it is, as unto the Lord, not for a human master, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord God you are serving. Now, people think, I got a bad boss. He's grumpy. I don't get paid enough. It's unfair or whatever. But here's the deal. God says, if you're a believer, you work for Jesus, and one day a reward is coming. Maybe you don't like your work right now and you aspire to something different. That's okay and that's great. But for the moment, where you are, you do it with all your heart. While you're waiting on a better job, while you're waiting on better improvement, you give it your best. Whether it's waiting on a table or washing a car part-time or working at HEB, you give it your best. That's a command from God. That's not an American culture workplace. That's God's kingdom. Do I have a great attitude? Do I try to bless my coworkers? Are they glad I'm with them on the team? Do I ask God constantly for his help so we can do something together? When I'm in default mode, vocationally, I just punch a clock. I just check out whatever, whatever. I don't care. I don't think about working for God, and I'm not doing it with all my heart. Uh, that's pretty much a good part of the American workforce. A recent state of American workplace surveys found two-thirds of American workers are not engaged in their job. One psychologist wrote, outside of your genetics, job satisfaction is the single most predictor of longevity for your life. Now that you know that, how many of you feel like you might die before you get out today? <laughs> See, am I working by God's design or just the American culture? Maybe you're a student. Adam had something to say about that. You might be thinking, if you're in school, work's a long way off. Something I'll do some other day when I get out of school. Listen to Genesis 2. Now the Lord formed out of the ground all the wild animals, all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever he called them by name, that's what its name would be. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. Now in the ancient world, to name was not just to label. It meant to study, to discern, to observe, to research, and to articulate the nature of something. 
It was biology and zoology and animal husbandry all rolled into one part of learning that God gave to his little image bearers called Adam and Eve. Now, if you're a student, learn with diligence and joy. That's what you're made for. If you're a student, don't live in this performance-driven anxiety about grades that just crushes a lot of young people. Don't cheat on the test. Just learn with integrity and be grateful. Uh, about a year or two ago, we did something on the pursuit of happiness. And there's a guy named, and I mentioned him, Tal Ben-Chazar. And he taught a course on happiness at Harvard that became the most popular course at Harvard. He went on to travel around the world, and he went to a really impoverished part of the world to talk about education to students. And since they didn't speak English, he was looking for some source of humor to connect with them because he was having to speak through a translator. So he asked, how many of you really like homework? And he knew from speaking to American students, nobody would raise their hand. But in the impoverished, under-resourced part of the world, when he asked that question, everybody raised their hands. And he wasn't prepared for it. Because for them, learning was not a privilege they were entitled to. It was a gift that could deliver them out of poverty and out of despair. Maybe you're older. Where in the Bible is there a verse that says, Thou shalt retire at 65, cash out thy house, and move to New Braunfels? I will eat it. The word retire is not in the Bible. Now, you might stop working for a paycheck, but you can volunteer, you can mentor, you can serve, you can tutor, you can pray, you can help, you can encourage. As long as we're alive, we have a purpose. You know, you're not done if you're not dead. One more word about work. From the very beginning, our work has involved caring for the world God created and God loved. And for the life of me, I never understand why people inside the church or outside the church don't know that environmentalism is a passionate concern of our creator God. In fact, we believe we live in a creation not just as environment made by God, but it belongs to God. It was declared good by God, and we're accountable for it as stewards of it. When you recycle, when you spare the air, when you lessen your carbon footprint, when you plant a tree, when you plant flowers, when you turn down the thermostat or you carpool and you do it in Jesus' name, you're given a tiny gift to the Father whose world this is. You're a steward of this world. we got signs that aren't biblical, but they are. Don't mess with Texas. Don't litter. That's, that, that's dirty, nasty. Don't litter your yard. Don't, if you own a company, don't pour toxins into the river. Nobody would argue with me over that. This is not a political issue, right or left. It's a biblical principle. God, I did, a, I did a, a sermon several years ago in our old location, 15 years ago, Is God Green? And I went through the Old Testament, and people were stunned to see how God told Israel in battle, you may not chop down these trees, and you may not do this, and you may not do that, how to take care of the environment. Very specific. And so if I'm a steward, that means my yard shouldn't be a weed patch. My house ought not be a junk heap. Things broken, discontinued. The car I drive, it might not be new, it might be old, but it can be clean. Why can't it be excellent? You can use what you have the best you have. You know, the only guy in Matthew 25 that got rebuked was the guy that had his one gift and he didn't use it. Didn't take care of it, didn't do anything. The rest of them multiplied it, made it better. Took what God gave them and multiplied it. God says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. The other last guy got you, lazy, sloppy, non-productive servant. I'm going to take what you have and give it to the guy that was 10 talents. 
Why? Because he's a good investment and you're not. That's a good question. Am I a good investment? If God made me rich, am I a good investment? If God gave me power, am I a good investment? Will I be a good steward? That's a sobering question because a lot of people wouldn't be. Don't treat this earth like dirt. God made it. And when I step onto a, a job or a property, if I go to work for a businessman, I'm going to make my assignment better. I'm going to up the ante. There are certain star sports players, when they join a team, they raise the play of the team. You should raise the play of your team, your class, whatever you do, your ministry. That's discipleship to Jesus. Is there any area in your work life where you've just kind of been going on default, autopilot, and you need to shift into a design mode? It's an amazing thing to be able to add value, to go from creation to culture, from good or even bad to very good. you got a body life. You have a work life. Third, you have a relational life. Amazing, but God didn't have to do it. He could have just stopped with Adam, but he actually, after he made Adam, uh, it was good what he created, but then when Adam was alone, God says, not good. So we're designed for connection, whether you're single or married. Let's start with marriage for a minute. It's amazing to me that nobody would ever think of building a house without a blueprint. If you're building a house and somebody asks, are you building a ranch? Nobody would say, I don't know. I'll tell you when it's done. What? But people go for years in a marriage in a default mode. They don't have a clue what they're building. Do I speak to the person in this relationship by design or by default? When Adam first sees Eve, his heart's melted. He breaks out into poetry. This is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Woo! Now, do you think he always spoke to Eve in poetry? Or maybe over time, did he come to just take her for granted by default? Eventually, when she asked Adam, do you still love me? Did he eventually just say, who else, Eve? <laughs> there ain't nobody else. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's just funny. <laughs> I'm not going for the cow. I'm not going for the monkey. You're, you're it, babe. Sorry. That's it. A good marriage takes learning and studying and trial and error and time and observation. When I was first married on Mother's Day, I got Cindy what I thought she would love. I'd watched her sweep pine needles out of our driveway in Savannah, Georgia, and I thought, I'm going to make her job easier. I bought her a leaf blower. And when she opened it, I said, yeah, I knew you'd love it because it was fearfully and wonderfully made. And that led to a very interesting conversation. <laughs> it's very telling that for Adam and Eve, their sin against God damaged their relational life with each other. When God asked Adam, what have you done? Adam's first response wasn't to take responsibility. It was to throw Eve under the bus and blame the woman. So God then had to invent reconciliation. Think for a moment about your relationships. God didn't have to do it. He could have made you the only person in the world or had you live in isolation. But he's created other human beings to know you, love you, serve, for you to serve and love. And that's just kind of unbelievable. I'm thinking about all the good friends God's given me who can help me do things I can't do. I don't know how to do them. I don't know how to get it. But those friends come alongside in a crisis and help me do it, whether it's construction or fixing something thank God and then there are certain things I can do they can't do and I'm available that's through partnership together see 
We just take it for granted, like we're entitled to that, like we did something to earn it, but we didn't. Am I living by design with the people in my life? Am I friends with people who are influencing me in a good and godly direction? Do we pray together? Do we call out the best in each other? Do I share my struggles with them? Do I put at least as much effort into my relationships as into my work life? Because the American culture will suck you into idolizing work life and neglecting your relational life. And it just goes into a default mode. I may be a minister, but I'm a father. I'm a husband. God doesn't, God says duties don't conflict. God never called anybody to destroy your marriage because you're spiritual. He didn't call me to destroy my relationship with my children because uh, I have a, a, a ministry career. And I've had guys do that in the name of serving God. No, no, there's time to serve here. There's time to be a husband. There's time to take out the trash run this errand, go pick this up for me. I got nothing else to do, sure, okay. And to be a daddy to my kids. It's, it's, they will work together. And if you're out of balance in that, you're headed for just, just, just a lot of regret, a lot of regret. Don't do that. Now, Cindy, my wife, is constantly sending out birthday cards, or pre- I don't know what this costs us, birth stacks, prayer cards to our friends, encouragement, a way of saying, I'm thinking about you. I care about you. (laughs) It'll be a long time after you decompose when you get a card from me. (laughs) I will text you. Happy birthday. So sorry to hear. She's got all the cardboard, the envelopes, and the stamps with all the personal. I want to be like that, so I text, but I don't send cards. She's a good example to follow. I need to do it more. So I keep learning from that. Am I connecting with my relationships by design or by default? So you have a body life. It's amazing. You have a work life. What a remarkable gift. Don't take it for granted. You have relational life. There are other human beings in your world who love and care for you or want to. And last, you have a spiritual life. Above everything else, you and I were designed by God for life with God. In fact, this is the great design secret of the universe. You were created in the image and likeness of God for God's glory and good. And the earth was brought into existence uh, deeply so that this magnificent God could come and live with human beings. And we would work on this great project of life together. And this is from Genesis 3. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Walking is about the simplest and oldest and most common activity two human beings can do together. You don't need any money. You don't need any education. As long as there have been people, friends do it by, for recreation. Lovers walk together hand in hand. Uh, parents will do it with their little toddlers. They'll hold the little hand or finger down, and the little guy will reach up and hang on, so proud to walk. Old married couples do it with canes and walkers. All through the Bible, there's this picture of walking with God. It's said of a man named Enoch, and we don't know anything about him, that he walked with God. God's friend Abraham, Moses, and David made lots of mistakes, but they walked with God. But it all began with Adam and Eve and God in a garden in the cool of the day. Are you walking with God by design? Do you make enough time to connect with him, to be with him? Do you pray and tell him honestly what's on your heart, good or bad? Do you worship this magnificent God? Worship is such a great gift to us. 
thank him and live in gratitude? Do I confess? Do I ask for forgiveness? Do I say I'm sorry, I'm wrong? Do I read the story of the Bible so I can learn more about him? Well, one day, God came for their walk, and they're not there. They're hiding in their sin and guilt and shame and fear and worry. And I was thinking about how we hide from God and avoid prayer, avoid church, avoid the Bible, avoid people in a connect group. Don't ever run from God, run to God. See, you don't even go to your connect group. You just, you go into isolation. And these are people who could speak truth to you, encouragement to you. We, we, we just avoid thinking about God. We're really good at not thinking about God. And here's the main thing I want to tell you this morning. Even if you've been hiding from God a long time, God's ready to find you. Remember the game as kids, hide and seek? We hide, God seeks. Every now and then I see a religious book on the pursuit of God. I don't see that in Scripture. God's pursuing man. God's after you. Adam, where are you? Adam wasn't out there. Where's the Lord? Where's the Lord? This religious nonsense all based on works. I'm going to get down, I'm going to crawl, I'm going to try to find the Lord. I'm going to pursue the Lord like he's lost. God isn't lost, you are, Sparky. He's right where he's always been. He says, return to me, I'll return to you. It's simple, he loves you. See, you look at our world and all the pain and all the evil and all the hate and all of the injustice and you think God's design has now been irrevocably spoiled. But God has a design solution for it. And it's in Adam's story, actually. He said to the serpent, the evil one, the tempter, Genesis 3, that there would come an offspring from the woman Eve, and there would be a battle between evil and this son of Eve, and that son, although wounded by evil himself, would crush the headship, the life and power of the serpent, and it was so. Jesus, who was called the last Adam, came and died on the cross for the first Adam and the first Eve and all the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve who have ever lived to this day so that our sins could be forgiven, our shame could be healed. And God says, if you come out of hiding, confess your sins and repent and and, and just give God half a chance, you'll hear those divine footsteps coming around the corner and the face of God will shine on you. For more information on Summit Christian Center, visit summitsa.com.